trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome aboard, my fellow wrong thinker. Hey, if you haven't visited the website yet, please go to thebrianhydeshow.com and just take a second to look at the show notes. I ask you to do this because oftentimes I will run out of time and I post a lot of different articles, a lot of different essays, as well as some of my own thoughts, my own annotations, if you will, of uh, what's going on. And you will find a lot of great food for thought there. You won't necessarily agree with all of it. I don't expect you to. I'm just saying if you want to be a little bit better informed, see some things from uh, non-traditional sources that nonetheless make a whole lot of sense Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's where you'll also learn about my sponsors like the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage or Jeff Staples Real Estate or Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. I'll be telling you more about each of these as we move ahead. But uh, again, I'm very grateful to have you with me today. By the way, consider subscribing to the podcast, letting your friends know, maybe even consider becoming a wrong thinker patron and throwing a few shekels uh, this way as, as you're able to. So I want to start with something. I know everybody is kind of talking about the debate yesterday. I've not heard one person say, man, that was the greatest thing ever. (laughs) Nobody is very happy, which may actually be a good thing. In fact, if there's any sentiment that I am hearing expressed right now that that seems to ring deeper than any other, it's the idea that that was ugly or some variant of we're screwed. If that's the best we can do, if this is the best we can do in coming up with candidates to run for the highest office in the land, uh, what does that say about us? And I don't want to sound like I'm some kind of a masochist or that, I, that I'm making fun of people's pain. I felt the pain when I actually I, I followed it on the Twitter feed, but then I got curious and I actually started watching the live stream of it and, and my mouth just hung open. I, and my, my jaw dropped as I sat there watching stuff that would have made Jerry Springer blush. In terms of uncouth behavior, just insanity, especially for the kind of decorum and the kind of leadership and and, you know, responsibility that we normally associate with that office. Now, I'm not pointing the finger solely at Donald Trump, so please don't get me wrong here. This is it was it was a it was a three way Texas death match. It was just lacking, you know, a WWE wrestling ring. But as much as we may not want to admit it, all that purse swinging taking place at last night's presidential debate is a direct reflection of what our society is becoming. Now, people don't like to hear that because they want to think, well, what do you expect from politicians? That's that's what that's what Washington, D.C. is like. And it's true. That's that's what it's like. But it's like that because we put up with that. We keep sending the same people back to the seats of power who think like that. And what that means for us is that if you want to be a good citizen, 
you have got to break out of the idea that, uh, well, then I'll just go and vote, and that will be the, the sum total of my good citizenship is getting out there and voting. And I know a lot of people right now are in that mode. This is the most important election ever. you got to vote. But there's got to be a little bit more to it. If voting was going to solve this problem, I think it would have solved it some time ago. It hasn't. If anything, it's getting worse. My friend Gary Arnell is an educator, and I love his observations because Gary is one of the more principled individuals I know. He's a, he's a gentle soul, but he has very, very deep insights. And part of this is because he is a lifelong, classically educated thinker, meaning he never stopped learning. He never stopped reading difficult books, the great works of Western civilization and so forth. And he has an, an article out called Debate Number One, A Reflection of Our Nation, Not an Aberration. I know the title alone kind of grabs you because it's like, what do you mean? That last night wasn't an aberration? That dumpster fire wasn't, you know, some kind of weird happening that has all of us shaking our heads? No. Listen to Gary's explanation. He says, right out of the gate, the debate was a disaster. He says, I was appalled by Trump's interruptions, wild claims, and childish bullying. I was frustrated by Biden's failure to denounce Antifa, his flip-flop on the Green New Deal, his perpetuation of the myth of systemic racism, his avoidance of the question of the obvious corruption of his unskilled son getting $50,000 a month from a Ukraine gas company, and on and on. Now, Gary says, at first I was just shaking my head at this apparent anomaly of such bizarre, disrespectful, and undisciplined behavior on the national stage. But he says, then in a moment of eerie and haunting realization, I wasn't just seeing Trump versus Biden. I was seeing our national conversation distilled into three people talking past each other noisily, unproductively, and very much like a train out of control veering off a cliff. The debate wasn't an aberration. It was a reflection. Incivility, misinformation, and gridlock just like what we see on the news, on social media, and increasingly in our streets. He says the most important line of the night wasn't spoken by the moderator or either candidate. It was NBC co-anchor Savannah Guthrie who nonchalantly said before the debate began, and the stakes, well, they're high. The presidency and the future direction of our country on the line. To which Gary says, full stop, a presidential election should never be about the future direction of our country. And yet it is. We've made the president an emperor responsible for solving our collective problems and willingly handing him the power to do so. And then the first question by moderator Chris Wallace. Where do you think a Justice Barrett would take the court? Full stop. A Supreme Court justice shouldn't be able to take the court or by inference the country anywhere. She should simply judge existing law, not make it. And yet they do. We've abdicated our collective responsibility to vigorously debate critical issues among ourselves and use the amendment process when we want to make constitution-level law. Abdicated it to five of nine. He says, within the first few minutes of the evening, a root cause of what ails us as a country revealed itself. Over the last 100 years, we have dismissed the notions of limited government. In other words, a president should provide over very little. And separation of powers. Judges shouldn't make law. We've dismissed them as quaint and primitive relics rather, of a bygone era and erected instead 
an enormous Byzantine federal government where power is centralized to solve all of society's problems. In other words, the rest of the debate's topics, race, health care, the economy, etc. And he says that's the problem, or at least it's a problem, one of the big ones. Now, Gary points out in a recent essay, he compared our ship of state to a ship of war where bulwarks and watertight doors protect the ship from flooding if one compartment is breached by corruption or incompetence. By centralizing power, we have opened many of the doors meant to isolate danger. Our ship of state is on fire and taking on water. He says we need to reduce the scope, the stakes, the clamor for power, and the inevitable corruption and confusion by closing the watertight doors and restoring the integrity of each of the compartments, the judiciary, the presidency, the legislature, the states, etc. He says in another recent essay, he made the case that Justice Barrett would be an excellent addition to the Supreme Court because of her belief in this limited government, isolate the powers approach. As a constitutional originalist, she recognizes her role is to judge the law, not to make it. Judicial activism has opened the watertight door, separating the judiciary from the legislature. And he says, as much as we like to see society's problems solved more quickly than they would be through the amendment process, this breach in our whole is the source of the bitter contention we see in our court nomination and confirmation process. And the imposition of one slice of America's will upon the other through undemocratic means. Now, there's another aspect here, and that is the uninformed citizen. He said another stark realization he had in this debate was that 99% of what he's learned about moral, political, and economic philosophy, everything that informs his political opinions, he learned after college. He says, I wasn't prepared for the duties of citizenship by 13 years in public school and four years at a state university. In the ensuing years, he says, I've attended lectures, conferences, read mountains of books, listened to untold hours of podcasts, pursued a graduate degree, all with the purpose of trying to understand why things are the way they are and how they might be better. Now, Gary Arnell says, I I feel like I have a long way to go and much more to learn. And his point is citizenship requires a path of lifelong learning. And he says, I don't know any way around that. I got to take a break here. We'll come back. We'll finish up his article. By the way, I'd like to open up the lines and get your take on this as well. You probably have some thoughts if you were watching the debate. 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I want to take a moment here to tell you about Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. This is particularly for my listeners in and around the Wasatch Front. If you are uh, passing through Salt Lake City, for that matter, this is something you really should consider doing, and that is uh, making a little stop into Nikki's. Now, the best way to get the directions is to jump onto Facebook. Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse is what you're looking for. They uh, just got a lot of chicken and burgers in the freezer and i mean we're talking you know huge boxes of uh, frozen uh, chicken breast and so forth that uh, you can get for such a terrific deal 
lots of chips and drinks, vegetables. They get fresh produce. There's uh, it, basically this is a a food warehouse. Okay, this is not a big you know superstore. It's a food warehouse where if you're trying to stretch your food budget. I can promise you it will go further at Nikki's than any other place. They do accept EBT and food stamps now. They accept most credit cards. Everything is 100% guaranteed or get your money back. That includes produce, by the way. No questions asked. So if you want to stretch that uh, grocery buying dollar, maybe you want to stock up on a few essentials, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse is the place I would check out. So great news for anyone within the sound of my voice along the Wasatch Front. All right, back to the show. By the way, lines are open, 801-331-8113. I know most everybody seems to have an opinion on the debate yesterday, myself included. What a crazy thing to see. And and I don't mean that from the standpoint of, boy, my candidate, you know, I'm so proud. Even the people who I think, uh, I, I probably because I hang out more with, with folks who are more likely to be diehard Trump supporters than uh, than diehard Biden supporters. Um, even the, the really diehard Trump supporters were kind of like, yeah, that uh, yeah, that pretty much sucked. So, I, I mean, nobody's trying to spin it as, wow, that was a great thing. That was an ennobling thing that made our nation better. And it kind of makes you wonder what uh, what comes next if we are this divided and this ugly going into this election. I just I can't see something good coming from it. We're just a little over a month out. And, yeah, that, that sick feeling in the pit of my stomach, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. Which actually leads me to, to a, a thought here. What can we do? What are some of the things you and I can do that hopefully won't make the situation worse? See, it's, it's kind of like wearing tap shoes in a, in a cow pasture that also has a minefield in it. In, the, there's, in, in today's uh, hyper-social justice environment, somebody's always looking for an excuse to be offended, to accuse you of systematic racism or, or some, some other form of insensitivity. And it's getting worse, not better. I got a great article from Jeff Minnick that I'm going to share with you here in a few minutes about the dangers of appeasement in a social justice world. But the most important part of this article has to do with suggestions that he gives in ways that each one of us can fight to save and restore our culture without becoming the monsters that are trying to destroy it or becoming the kind of people that would go around bullying and canceling and otherwise um, trying to, to silence anybody who doesn't see things the way they do. We'll get back to that in a moment. Caller, welcome to the show. Well, I guess I'm going to be one of those, what do you call it, the thinkers, the uh, unlikable thinker? A wrong thinker? <laughs> Are you going to be a wrong thinker for us today? I'm going to be a wrong thinker right now. Brother, you know, welcome. <laughs> as, as, as far as Trump, I mean, at this point, who in their right mind would have to believe Joe Biden has anything to offer this country? And, and and how much longer can you, you know, accept sweet talking from these people? I'll tell I'll tell you who thinks that way, and that's Evan McMullen. Evan McMullen yeah. was was making some noise today about how, well, if you if you value the Constitution, even if you don't agree with some of Joe's policies, you've got to vote for Joe Biden. And I'm like, really? Did you not hear a word out of the guy's mouth? I, I, I would never listen to that guy. That guy was only. He, 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 some of those folks 
or wasn't wasn't Evan McMullen a longtime government career? What was he? CIA FBI or something? Yeah, he was. He was in the CIA. Yeah, of course they wanted to never end. They wanted to print money, travel the world. You know, I mean, I mean, if anybody has any basic common sense, which is free, and they're not taxing you on it yet. <laughs> but we are now twenty-seven trillion dollars in debt. Our country. Okay, basic economics. When you take that and you put it up against our GDP, it's game over. The only answer now is to print money, print money, and steal from future generations. That that's it. And Joe Biden's been in government for forty-seven years. You honestly think he's going to get the greatest health care system put underway? Or, or he's going to bring jobs back. Or, but Rob, I mean, he he looked into the camera and assured me it's me he cares about. Really, really. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I got to say the frustrations in, in Donald Trump's face. I I, I shared. I, I was actually relaxed watching him yell at him because that's what needs to happen at this point. These politicians have run the ship aground and we've we you, you know everyone says oh well that's not presidential well I, i've had 30 years of people whispering sweet things in my ear and doing other things to me as well in politics and i don't like it i'm done they're not going to get a great i still don't have the same health care package joe biden has my pension's not funded by the taxpayers. I have to go out and generate money to pay my taxes and fund my own pension plan. Yeah. I'd, and I pay for You have no, reason to be frustrated. Yeah, I'm done. You know, Joe Biden, that guy, you know, I had the opportunity to shake hands with Orrin Hatch years ago and have a little conversation with him. And I just see the same person in Joe Biden as I see in Orrin Hatch. So there you go. Those are the career politicians that yep. have been on welfare, because that's a form of welfare. I've always said that. All the stuff that these – I mean, hey, we need career careers for government in some things. But being a politician should not be a career. Hey, man. Preach it, brother. Just call me Reverend Rob. Okay, Reverend Rob. Reverend Rob the Wrong Thinker. That's got a nice ring to it. It does. Thank you. Okay. Have a good day. Thanks for the call. 801-331-8113. Rob just reminded me, a uh, very short little survey here, or a short little uh, essay by, uh, I believe this is from Daniel Boudreau. Don Boudreau. Sorry, I got his name wrong here. But Ridiculous Widespread Beliefs. And he says, a friend of his who wishes to remain anonymous put this question to him. What are the five most ridiculous beliefs that many people hold about economics or politics, beliefs that should be recognized as ridiculous by any sane adult, regardless of education or exposure to economics? So here's his tentative answer in ascending degree of ridiculousness. Number one, free trade is a plot by the elites to enable corporations to profit at the expense of ordinary people. Number two, the war on drugs protects us and our children from violence and other crimes. This next one's going to sting. I'm just going to warn you. Number three, those immigrants 
You know, the kind who mow your lawn, work as maids in the motel you last stayed at, deliver and install the new dishwasher you bought, and are part of the construction crew building the new road in town, are lazy welfare leeches who are stealing Americans' jobs. Number four, government officials who do not know you care enough about you for you to trust them with power over you. And last but not least, this one's going to sting too. The most precious right an individual can have is the right to vote. I think I'll post that with the show notes just because it, it, it was pretty worthwhile. Five ridiculous widespread beliefs that any sane adult should reject. And yet I'm pretty sure I heard both candidates at various points kind of advocate one or more or maybe all of those beliefs. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, fellow wrong thinker, welcome back to the show. By the way, I want to give a quick shout out to some of the various uh, radio stations as well as networks that uh, carry this program. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's, it's, it's an absolute dream come true to see uh, the, the traction starting to take hold and, and this program starting to, to spread. Uh, I won't say far and wide, but it is starting to spread wide. <laughs> it's, it's getting out there. And so we have great stations like KTALK 1640 in Salt Lake City, as well as KDXU in southern Utah. And uh, I, I'm so happy to be back on, even if it's on the weekends there in my old stomping grounds. Um, also, a shout out to the Loving Liberty Radio Network, Fed by Ravens Media Network, as well as uh, Liberty News Radio, Missouri Liberty Radio, TalkStream Live, and there may be even a couple of others that I'm not getting. I apologize if I'm leaving anybody out. But uh, it really gives me hope to know that uh, a simple, humble little show and podcast such as this can actually can actually get out there and, and be a platform for speaking the truth. Because I think we are really facing a tough time in getting good information. And, and I look at the censorship and the cancel culture that tries its best to shut down all those d- dissenting points of view. And it's not to say that every dissenting point of view, including my own, is necessarily right. But I think we have the right to hear them and at least choose for ourselves, as opposed to some self-appointed fact checker, you know, telling us, no, 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 <laughs> don't you look that direction. You might see something you're not supposed to see. It's so patronizing and it's, it's just it's demeaning. I want to come back here for a moment to Jeff Minnick's article on intellectualtakeout.org. And he says, if you're paying attention to the news, you're probably aware of religious persecution in China, Nigeria, Iran, and other countries. And these are places where Christians are often facing imprisonment, death, or loss of their civil liberties. Here in America, he says, attacks on Christians and their faith are much more subtle, but nonetheless real and ongoing. And he's got a couple of articles that he links to here. and You'll find these in the show notes as well. How cultural Marxism is grinding Christianity down. This is from John Eitzen. And he begins by citing an old but valuable book by Cleon Skousen, The Naked Communist, in which Skousen lists the goals of communism. Goals 27 and 28 involve the infiltration of churches 
and the replacement of scripture-based revealed religion with social religion, or what we today would call social justice and the elimination of religion of any sort in our public schools. Eidson then gives more than a score of examples of this grinding down of American Christianity, citing all sorts of cases ranging from schools banning Christmas carols to a student failed by a professor for refusing to renounce her Christian faith. That one kind of strikes home. We, uh, we watched God is Not Dead just a couple of weeks ago, and it's been a few years since I had watched that movie, and I, I have to admit, I kind of was like, I was a little bit skeptical when I first saw it. Okay, all right, got a bunch of B-list actors, you know, here. Um, it's a very powerful movie. And, and I, I realized the power of that movie as I'm watching it and, uh, and realizing that uh, it takes courage, especially in like the, the secular climate of a, of a university for a student, a young person to stand up and assert their faith, not to push it on other people, but simply to, to say it will not be taken from me. And it's not a sign of my maturity and sophistication to, to reject it. The kicker for me was when uh, the movie ended. And I'm not going to spoil it with you by telling you how it ends, but it's it's pretty touching. And I watched there as my 12-year-old daughter sobbed. I mean, the tears just flowed. And I, I'll admit it. I was wiping tears from my eyes, though not, not for the same reason that, that she was. I, just, I was just touched by the expressions of faith that, that people are, are willing to, to put out there knowing full well that they risk being, you know, ridiculed or marginalized or otherwise, you know, shouted down. Now, going on with the article, this uh, this uh, Eidson points out that by using words like diversity, inclusivity and multiculturalism as justifications, cultural Marxists in corporate America, in government and publicly funded schools and colleges regularly scold, threaten and punish Christians, as well as censor religious activities by Christians and Christian organizations. And the article ends with a brief video featuring Harvard professor Clay Christensen on the importance and value of religious freedom. Christensen starts by telling viewers of a conversation he had with a Marxist economist from China who was studying in the United States. When Christensen asked the economist if he had learned anything surprising or unexpected during his time here, without any hesitation, he said, Yeah, I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy. Now, this Chinese economist, who had clearly done some homework on this matter, then pointed out that most Americans obeyed the, Americans obeyed the law not because of an all-powerful state, but because for centuries, Americans had learned, had learned they must obey the laws of God. Christensen then wonders whether democracies can survive without religion. And he ends with this chilling statement, because if you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. Strange, isn't it, that a Chinese Marxist would understand the connection between religion and our republic just as our founding fathers did. And Jeff Minnick says that so many of the faithful buckle to corporate and government demands we may easily witness in the pandemic closures or restrictions imposed on our churches today. Very few bishops, priests, ministers, or pastors have publicly opposed or questioned these shutdowns, which likely violate the First and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution. Few church leaders question why the state has stripped worshipers of their right to attend church while at the same time permitting mass protests in our in our streets. As Ronald Reagan said in his 1964, a time for choosing speech, quote, every lesson in history tells us the greater risk lies in appeasement 
and this is the specter our well-meaning Christian liberal friends, our priests, bishops, and pastors refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement, and it gives us no choice between peace and war, only between fight and surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to move back and retreat, we will have to face the final demand, the final ultimatum, and then what? End quote. So Jeff Minnick says, whatever our religious faith, we should all oppose such appeasement, for it's not only Christianity undergoing this destruction, but the rest of our culture as well. Most of us are either too good-natured or too busy living to protest Marxist concepts like cancel culture, white privilege, and gender politics. But our silence allows these radical ideas to gain traction. And so he says, to combat the dark forces that have infiltrated our corporations, our governments, our universities, and schools, and many of our churches, we must first open our eyes and understand the truth of this reality. And the truth, as the old book says, will set us free. So with this new vision, he says, we can fight to save and restore our culture using the same tactics as those who wish to destroy it. In a myriad of small ways, each of us can participate in this battle. Now, he's, he's not talking about go burn buildings down or, or confront people and, and, you know, bully them. He's talking about things like this. We can vote. We can write letters to our elected officials. I like this next one. We can personally see that our young people are taught American history from sources like Wilfred McClay's Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. By the way, I, was, I would also add um, Cleon Skousen's book, The Making of America, which breaks down piece by piece, section by section, every bit of the Constitution and explains the thinking that went into each one of those. Very good stuff. Jeff Minnick says we can educate those same young people by taking them to historical sites like Jamestown, Gettysburg, and the Alamo. We can start book clubs to further our education and end our sense of isolation. We can ask questions of our liberal friends rather than arguing with them. By the way, one of the most productive questions that you can ask, but it requires that you actually listen to their answer, is ask them, what have you experienced that has caused you to embrace the worldview that you now have? And then shut up and let them tell, let them tell you. Oftentimes they'll say, oh, there's nothing. There was nothing. I've always known this. But they haven't. And as you listen to them, more often than not, you're going to find out it wasn't because they got, woke up one morning and said, I am evil and I want to take over the world and control people like you. But rather something they experienced, some very real injustice or pain that they saw with their own eyes or experienced with their own heart that caused them to embrace what they're embracing. You may still not agree, but at least you're going to see that that's a real person with real intent and real, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sincerity in their beliefs. He says we can give financial support to those schools, colleges and churches whose ideas align with ours. We can share sites like Intellectual Takeout with others. Or you can share podcasts like The Brian Hyde Show with others. We can stop buying goods from businesses and stores that fund radical groups and causes. And he says, I'm sure readers can think of countless other measures. But his point is very simple. Let's join together, fight the good fight, and bring back America. And the only thing I would add to that is, yes, stand up and fight the good fight. But do it without bringing more anger to an already volatile, angry, fear-filled situation. It's not easy. 
But if you can learn to speak the truth with love and lose the need to win, I promise you will change hearts and you will change minds. And that's really what this is all about, isn't it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. That would be my friend John Staples and his lovely wife, Heather. And I'm telling you, if you are in the market right now to uh, purchase a home, maybe you want to refinance your existing home, or you just want to get pre-qualified before you go out there and start shopping, these are the folks you need to talk to. Patriot Home Mortgage has offices operating in 23 different states. So there's a pretty good chance, wherever you're hearing my voice, they can help you. What you need to do is go online to staplesmortgage.com. That will take you to John and to Heather, the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and they can take it from there. Again, Staples Home Mortgage, tell them that uh, you had to check them out because I was saying good things about them, and see for yourself. These are truly great people. They are scrupulously honest and hardworking, the kind of people that I would, would recommend to you without any hesitation. And I've known John for many, many years, like over 20 years. You can trust this guy. All right, a couple different articles I wanted to share with you. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to share this in its entirety, but there's a terrific article about an inalienable human right to commerce. This is from Peter C. Earle, and this is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Now, I want to give a shout-out to AIER as I do this because they have become one of my favorite go-to sources for information, and particularly as we have been navigating all the different difficulties of the COVID-19 response and lockdowns and so forth, these are the guys who I think have, have offered some of the best data, some of the most principled responses, and some of the, the best uh, solutions and suggestions out there. They've also countered the uh, prevailing narrative of, well, everything government did was okay and it was necessary, and, well, it sucks to be you if your business was being shut down, but... Um, these guys are very, very serious scholars, but more importantly, they are principled and they are schooled in political economy, understanding why people make the decisions that they do and, and where that line of interaction between people and politics meets. You can subscribe to their email, and I would really strongly recommend it every day. I think they send them out seven days a week. I see... Emails land in my inbox with about five or six or more um, articles from the American Institute for Economic Research. It is phenomenal content. And even if you don't read them all, whatever you do read, I promise, will help you become better informed. Whether you agree with it or not, you'll have a much clearer view and a broader perspective than you had going in. As far as the inalienable human right to commerce... Peter Earle says news over the last several days of a rise in COVID-19 infections has raised concerns regarding a second wave of coronavirus infections and in turn about new rounds of lockdowns and other restrictive measures. He says one could be forgiven for wondering why, if stay in place orders, interstate uh, movement restrictions and other such tyranny didn't scare off or confuse the virus in the spring and summer, why would they would suddenly prove effective in the fall? There are fewer people to infect now than in, the er in early 2020 owing to immunities. 
and the most vulnerable are, despite the tragic actions of governor in certain, governors in certain states early on, now better protected. Health professionals are already implementing improved means of treating the afflicted, yet nevertheless there are warnings about renewed restrictions on gatherings and voluntary forms of social interaction. Now, he's tooting the horn of the American Institute for Economic Research, but I think this is well-deserved. He says AIER has been covering the COVID-19 pandemic and the awful policy responses since late January. He says we've examined and discussed those nations which employed effective and ineffective disease mitigation strategies, the impact on financial markets and business more broadly, and the tremendous amounts of politically motivated dishonesty and quibbling which citizens in the U.S. and beyond have been subject to. Bad science? AIER was there. Good science and scientists? We were there. Taking on technocrats? We sure did. Questioning monetary policy? Of course. Fiscal policy? Certainly. Opportunistic taxes? Indeed. In fact, he recently did. It certainly looks as if AIER has tackled almost every policy issue conceivably tied to or resulting from state handling of the coronavirus pandemic. And he says we have almost... And from here, he delves into commerce, specifically the Constitution and commerce. And it starts with a definition of what rights are. I like the, I like the definition Joseph Sobran used to give, which rights, your natural rights, are what restrict the power of the state over you. And Peter C. Earle expands on this, saying rights, of course, are not given by states. They are not legal, but natural. As human beings, they exist axiomatically, and they cannot be taken away. Being subject to legal or regulatory strictures and whether one adheres voluntarily or not indicates the presence of an artificial imposition separating human beings from the fulfillment of their choices and their selected personal interactions. And he gives the example of the lockdown or stay-at-home orders originally put in place to flatten the curve, but in some places having remained largely, largely in effect since March or so. They're unconstitutional. And it's only a combination of fear, political maneuvering, and full dockets which have prevented their review. Now, there's much more to this. It's a very, it's it's a pretty lengthy essay. I highly recommend it. There's great historical perspective. There's a a marvelous case for a human right to commerce. And I'm just going to take this. This is from the very end, kind of a summary. The lockdowns in response to COVID-19 have taught many lessons. One is that politicians either don't understand or care about maintaining the integrity of the wellspring of prosperity, private commerce, rooted in individual liberty and private property rights. A second is that an enshrined, protected, and inviolable right, a human right, to private commercial dealing on whatever scale or basis it may take, can no longer be overlooked. He says, if there's a palliative to be retrieved from the economic and social wreckage of tyrannical COVID-19 policies at home and abroad, it's this. The purposeful reversal of the political erosion of private property rights and the right of livelihood. And that turnabout should take the form of a long overdue formal appanage, a primary and inalienable human right to commerce. Good stuff. Now, I want to end on a, on a very up note. Um, great article on uh, Mises.org. Ron Paul remains unstoppable. This is from Jeff Deist who tells us that when Ron Paul suffered a health scare during his live Liberty Report show last Friday, Jeff says, I was perhaps less worried than most. 
His remarkable vitality, vigor, and energy are well known to those around him, along with his penchant for exercise, clean living, and light eating. Having known him for 30 years, he says, I simply had no recollection of him ever being sick or out of commission. This is a man who had never missed a day of work or an event, at least in my memory. In my mind, he was simply always there, a fixed feature of life. So my immediate reaction was to think he would be fine. And as it turns out, he is fine, even unstoppable. In Dr. Paul's congressional office in the early 2000s, his mostly Generation X staff joked about how Ron Paul would bury us someday, despite being several decades older. Now that we're in our 50s, the joke hits a bit closer to home. But we were all familiar with his relentless nature. His pace was legendary. Waking early, printing articles to read, gathering newspapers, putting together his busy schedule for the day, and preparing for votes. It was always tough to keep up with him, literally. Legging around Capitol Hill to hearings, media hits, or finalizing details for one of his infamous special order speeches at the end of the congressional day. Ron bid for our office in the Cannon House, built, Cannon House building primarily for its proximity to the Capitol building itself, so he'd spend the least amount of time commuting. When he needed knee replacements, there was no question about doing both the same day over the congressional Christmas break. Always true to form, he was up and about almost immediately and eschewed even over-the-counter pain medication. He was always moving and absolutely hated to wait. His years as a busy obstetrician with babies arriving at all hours of the night in far-flung rural Texas hospitals certainly served him well when it came to less, the less serious job of Congress with its late-night votes and sudden schedule changes. Unlike medicine, however, the work of Congress is defined by motion rather than action. And many of, unlike many of his colleagues, who, when the votes ended, Ron headed back to his nondescript condo in Alexandria. There were no D.C. steakhouse dinners with lobbyists, no Capitol Hill bars and nightlife, and certainly none of the fleshy graft which ensnared so many politicians over the years. Dr. Paul's energy spills over into his life at home where he's always busy walking, biking, swimming, tending to his prized tomatoes, hosting a steady stream of family and guests. His retirement from Congress at the end of 2012 finds him producing five live Liberty Report episodes every week with his co-host Daniel McAdams, along with writing, public speaking, and media appearances. But he's much happier without the dreadful weekly slog back and forth to Bush Intercontinental Airport on the far side of Houston, along with the infuriating Kabuki Theater known as TSA. His family life is no doubt much improved. Now, there's much more that uh, Jeff Deist goes into as he celebrates Ron Paul, but he says the outpouring of love and affection shown to Dr. Paul last week after his incident shows the degree to which his revolution lives on. Ideas matter, but they are worthless without good people to advance and personify them. And he says Dr. Paul is loved because he's genuine, a quality in short supply today. I would dare say that is a worthy example for each of us to emulate. This is The Brian Hyde Show.